coming out of the pulpit for more than one month, let alone three months. And to be honest, I feel a little out of touch. And uh, most of you have been real kind and sort of welcome me back. And Carolyn and I both appreciate the, the warmth and the love that you share for us. As a result, I also found it a challenge to decide on just what the Lord would have me share with you this morning, the first day back from a three-month sabbatical, and with really only a month left for me to uh, complete uh, my ministry as the lead pastor here of Coast Bible Church. It does seem and uh, that it would be prudent not to try to finish the messages to the seven churches of Revelation those messages would need to require a lot of background, and they're a little difficult to do in a short time. However, I do plan to focus on one church out of the seven churches, the church at Philadelphia, uh, next week and the week after. This morning, however, I believe the Lord would have me to convey to you a message that would challenge all of us, me included, to reconsider how we look at the people and circumstances surrounding our lives, our homes, our workplace, our community, and even our church. Beloved, trans transitions and the change associated with them are not easy, whether in our lives, in our homes, in our workplace, or in our church. Transitions can be good and healthy, but seldom are they ever easy. Transitions and the change associated with them create a lot of seemingly awkward situations. I recall last Sunday, someone said to me, should I call you pastor or what? I remember when we got married, one of the big uh, stresses awkwardly was, should I call my wife's parents Paul and Aldine, or should I call them mom and dad? But the most glaring difficulties associated with transitions and change is that they tend to create a lot of emotional baggage that we just have to carry for a while and work through. From the pains and the pleasures of past memories to the fears and hopes of an unfolding future. From the temptation to point the finger and place blame to the challenge to point at God and see Him at work in our lives and in our church. Since I made the announcement last spring that I was stepping back from being the lead pastor, all of us, have had to deal with many conflicting emotions. The messages this morning, the message this morning, is sort of dedicated to all of us, me included, in our church family who have and who are continuing to wrestle with this emotional baggage. Four years ago, I preached a message from the first five verses of John chapter 9, entitled, Finding God at Work is Better Than Finding People to Blame. 
I sensed it was well received. Last spring, I reworked this message into an address to give to the Schaefer Seminary family at their graduation. In the process of reworking it, I discovered a couple of grammatical things that I had not observed in the text, which gave me new insights that have enriched my own life, especially during this time of transition. Many times this summer, I have drawn upon what I personally took away from this message. In fact, I even preached it in my home church back in Columbus in July, the church I grew up in as a little boy. And they say, you're kidding, you're a pastor? I've continued reworking it and would like to share it with you again this morning in the hope that it will minister to your heart as it's ministered to mine. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would encourage us today, as only you can, that you would strengthen our faith and our walk with you through an understanding and an application of your word to our lives. May we draw upon it for strength throughout the week, for it is the bread that we cannot do without. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you've been watching the evening news this week, you know that the media have been using the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina to treat viewers to another round of who's to blame for the New Orleans disaster. One glaring lesson that stands out as you view the nightly news evening after an evening is it's much easier for those reporting the news to point the finger than to point the way. This was especially driven home during this past month while we were in Colorado as the story unfolded about the capture of John Mark Kerr who claimed to be involved in the death of John Benet Ramsey in Boulder, Colorado. Newspaper stands were sold out, papers, those mornings that the story was unfolding. How sad that the public, consumed with bringing the guilty murderer to judgment, and rightly so, has little interest in bringing a culture to judgment which glamorizes sex in a little girl beauty pageant. And it goes on all the time. Like our father Adam, we fallen human beings always seem anxious to point the finger, but seemingly we're apathetic when it comes to pointing the way. Whether it is crime, the cost of housing, unemployment, public school violence, Iraq, Iran, or North Korea. In America, with our free press and our Bill of Rights and our open form of government, which are good, but they have led us to become obsessed to a degree with the game we learn to play as children. It's called the blame game more visibly known as pointing the finger. A second grader writes in his own self-evaluation in school, most of the time I get into fault, 
or into trouble. It's Robert's fault. And Robert, on the other hand, writes in his self-evaluation, I can't sit next to David anymore. He talks too much. And David and Robert are best friends. By the time we become adults, we have learned to play this game with great skill and daring. A game we play often in almost every home, job, school, community, and yes, church in America. We become so adept at playing the blame game that has become ridiculous. And I think I've shared this with you before, but you all recall the story of the man who was five foot ten and weighed two hundred and seventy pounds and he sued fast food chains for his obesity. Unfortunately, when it comes to the great tragedies of life, the blame game no longer becomes laughable. It becomes a game that can result in an even greater tragedy, a spiritual and psychological paralysis that can bring life to a halt, sometimes many lives. Things like the murder of a daughter, the accidental death of a son, the diagnosis of a terminal disease, the birth of a child who is blind or who has Down's syndrome, a terrible affliction that leaves one in a coma or bedridden, or the suicide of a child. Sometimes the blame seems easy to place. Sometimes it seems impossible to even understand, let alone know who to point the finger at. And all that some people can do is point the finger at God. But the ultimate tragedy is the paralysis that has shut down countless lives who have become consumed with the questions, how did this happen? Who's to blame? Why me, God? Regardless of the kind of tragedy or misfortune we or others around us suffer from, we will always be motivated to find someone to blame. And all too often our efforts are fruitless. Occasionally when we know we are to blame, confession and repentance can bring peace of mind and the healing of a life. But in most instances where we are searching long and hard for someone to blame. The point of the message this morning is that we need to stop and collect ourselves and turn to God for help because it is better to find God at work than people to blame. It is better for us to point our lives toward God then point our finger toward people. Whether it's a spot on our lung caused by our own smoking, or a broken life caused by an abusive parent, or a broken body caused simply by a defective gene, it is better to look expectantly for the hand of God in our lives and circumstances than to look despairingly at the faults of people that caused those circumstances. And when we see someone afflicted, 
by any tragedy or sorrow. It is better for us on the outside looking in to ask, what can we do for him or her rather than how did she or he get this way? Why did this happen? You see, this is how Jesus approached and received the broken and afflicted people along his path as he walked through this life. Even though he knew the heart of all people and could accurately place the blame, still he came with one overwhelming question. How would my heavenly Father want me to help this person? What work would he have me to do in them? He was not interested in becoming embroiled in the the theological controversy that had been raging from the days of Job. And you know what that controversy was. Who sinned? This man or his parents? Who sinned? This man or his parents? Turn, if you will, to John chapter 9. And we're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to briefly, I'm going to read the first five verses and then briefly just sort of cover the last part of the, the remaining part of the chapter. But let's read the first five verses with, together here. John 9, where you can follow along on the screen behind me. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the man, of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors of those who had previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Verse 13, They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees questioned him and challenged what had happened. They even called the blind man's parents in and challenged them. And finally, they called the blind man back again to find out some way to explain away this miracle and prove that Jesus was a fraud. We pick up uh, the story again in verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give glory, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees continued their confrontation with the blind man. And finally, in frustration because he wouldn't give in to their demands and lie or deceive, they excommunicate him from the synagogue. Then we read in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, the blind man, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, 
and he worshipped him. In John 9, we come to the sixth miracle and sign that Jesus performed the healing of a man born blind. Like all the miracles that Jesus did in his ministry on this earth, John brings out in his gospel this miracle, which was included by him for the purpose that we who read what he wrote and read about the miracles of Jesus' life might come to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in believing in him we might have everlasting life. John 30, 20, 30 to 31. And you may say, why is it that he, he opened the eyes of a blind man? In the book of Isaiah, we're told that one of the things that the Messiah, the Christ, would do when he set up his kingdom is that he would heal the blind so that they could see clearly. In healing the blind man, Jesus was revealing in a preliminary way that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son, the Savior of Israel and of the whole world including this blind man as well, who we read did eventually come to believe in him and be saved. Let's pick up the story again in verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. As Jesus walked by the man, he looked over and he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, the disciples, in verse 2, we read that they saw a subject... They didn't see a man. They saw a subject for theological analysis. In verse 8, the neighbors and his acquaintances thought of the man, and they saw a beggar. In verse 13, the Pharisees saw the man as a tool that they might possibly manipulate for their own ends. But in verse 1, we begin to understand that Jesus saw a man who indeed needed what only God could do. Jesus says, or it says, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Why was it emphasized that he was blind from birth? It's mentioned to emphasize the gravity, the weightiness, the seriousness of this affliction. This man, blind from birth, had never seen his mother or his father. He'd never seen the light of day. He'd never seen the beauty of a flower, of the world around him. Furthermore, being blind from birth meant that his blindness was no temporary disease, but a permanent affliction that was well known by all who knew the man and his family. To heal such a man was a a first-rate miracle that could be passed off as some kind of psychosomatic disorder. This was a miracle that would always be remembered by those who knew the man and who saw the man before and after the miracle. The gravity of the man's affliction also clearly moved the disciples of Jesus, who were so overwhelmed by the presence of the man and what they saw by the the sight of this man and his affliction, that they asked Jesus a theological question. That question is recorded for us in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Who sinned? It was widely held by the Jews that physical suffering was due to sin. 
Job's three friends wrongly connected the dots of his affliction to sin of some kind in his life. And there wasn't any. On the other hand, Jesus rightly associated sin and suffering in the life of the, of the diseased man of John 5. The question in the mind of the disciples was a natural outgrowth of their theological background and training and upbringing. Both good and bad. So they asked this question, who sinned? This man or his parents? Now had the man been blinded after his birth, they would likely not have asked the question because they would have figured that his blindness was clearly the result of something he had done. Some personal sin in his life caused him to be blind, which would not necessarily have been true, but that's the way they would have thought. But being blinded before he was born created a theological dilemma. Who sinned? Who can we blame this misfortune on, Jesus? Whose fault is this? Is it possible, as some Jewish theologians believe, that an unborn baby could have feelings that might be sinful? And you say, where in the world do they get that? Passages like um, Exodus 22, where it talks about the Jacob and uh, Esau struggling together in the womb of their mother. That's how they dig up that kind of thing. Or according Genesis 25, pardon me. Or according to Jewish understanding, some of the other theologians said, no, it's the result of the parents because the Bible teaches that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. Again, taking that passage out of context. But nevertheless, that's how they applied it. So the disciples wanted to know which camp's correct here. Which theological viewpoint is the right one, Jesus? Now today we shouldn't have any problem with a, with a parent viewpoint because we believe our parents are responsible for all of our problems. From our emotional and psychological dependencies and our physical maladies and from the propensity to commit certain sins to our corrupt and perverse behavior, we blame it all on our parents. It's their fault. So we would clearly come down in the one camp but notice something else about verse 2. It concludes with what is called a henna or purpose clause, which is highlighted in the Greek language by a Greek conjunction or word henna. Now, that may not be something that it's hard for us to tie into, but let me translate it this way. Rabbi who sinned, this, parent, his, this man or his parents, henna, he was born blind. Whenever I see a henna in the Greek text, my mind immediately translates in order that. It's a purpose. It introduces a purpose clause. So who, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, in order that he was born blind. The disciples, you see, were not just looking for an explanation. There's another conjunction that would have been used. Were they just looking for an explanation? They were looking more for the purpose behind this man's blindness. An explanation might be something like, well, he was blind because he was born without these particular characteristics and so forth, uh, this, this physical problem. But you see, they were looking way back at the beginning. What's the reason for this? Some, somebody has to be blamed here. There, there's a theological purpose behind this. Now, friends, it's not wrong to consider the theological purpose behind someone's suffering. It is just that it's usually better. 
It's usually better to consider the theological purpose in front of someone's suffering. That's the difference. The disciples, you see, were looking in the wrong direction. They were looking backwards. They were looking back at what this man or his parents might have done to provoke, perhaps, God to make him blind. When Jesus is saying it's better to look forward to what God was going to do in his life because he is blind. The theological purpose Jesus wants to consider is in looking forward to what God is going to do in and through this man who was born blind. And so Jesus, in effect, says, this was not the time to ask why and discuss the theology of suffering. This was the time to ask what and to look at the theological purpose God was working out in this man's life at this time. So Jesus changes the focus from a man challenging his onlookers to find someone to blame to a man challenging his onlookers to find God at work. When the disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, Jesus answered very clearly in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. You see, there was no specific sin that caused this man to be born blind. Then Jesus continues with some unexpected words. Again, using the conjunction of a henna to introduce a purpose clause, he moves their thinking forward. Notice how he does it. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents, but, and this is a very strong contrast, but henna, in order that the purpose or works of God should be revealed in him. Again, this is not the time, nor is it usually better, to look back for a theological purpose behind suffering. This is the time, and it's usually better, to look forward to the theological purpose in front of suffering, of great tragedy. And the theological purpose in front of this tragedy is that the works of God should be revealed in Him. This is an opportunity for the works of God to be revealed in and through the life of someone hopelessly, tragically afflicted and troubled, revealing to all that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, who offers eternal life and sight, spiritual sight as well as physical sight, in this case, to those who believe in Him, to the one who believed in Him. And to all who believe in Him, they are offered eternal life and spiritual sight. This is brought out even more forcefully when we keep in mind the, that in the original Bible there was no verse or period break between the next two verses which occur right after this verse. In other words, there's no verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, so forth. And as we read in our Bible, no periods, no punctuation in the original. And so we might read it more like this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Day is the time for labor. The opportunity for labor 
ends at night in their culture. Let's get that straight. Night is coming when no one can work. What is he referring to? Day is a reference to the day of Messiah, when he would teach and preach and minister freely, revealing God and himself to the world as the Messiah, Savior, the Son of God, to a world shrouded in darkness and sin. In this sense, he was the light of the world, living in darkness. But then the night is coming, he says. And this is a reference to that period of time when Jesus would be betrayed, crucified, and then resurrected and ascend into heaven. A time in which the light would be eclipsed by a work, the work of evil men. So Jesus continues in verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. His main point is the time is limited for him to work. Therefore, he needs to seize this opportunity to work the works of God in this blind man's life and in many other needy lives as well. This isn't the time to place the blame. This is not, it's not best to, to take up our time trying to figure out who's to blame. Instead, we should be looking forward to what God is going to do even when there is human failure. In our day, Jesus has raised up local churches to hold up the person, the work, and the words of Jesus Christ as a light to the dark world, in the dark world. In Revelation 2 and 3, as we've been going through the seven churches, these local churches are referred to as lampstands. They're not the lamp, but they are lampstands in that they are to hold up the light of Jesus Christ. They're to hold up before the world through their teaching and how they speak to one another and what they feel and believe to one another. They're to hold up the light of Jesus Christ. The world needs to see Jesus through them, through us. As a local church, we need to seize every opportunity to work the works of God in the lives of His people, in the lives of people who don't even yet know Him or believe in Him, to teach them, and speak to them and minister to them as Jesus taught and spoke and ministered to those around him in his day. And when we are functioning as the lampstands that God intended us to be, then people will be led to the Savior and to eternal life, which he freely gives. And to a life which is full of abundant opportunity and privilege in the body of Christ. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. Furthermore, we need to bear in mind that the time is limited. Eventually, we are told that the church will be removed from this world and literally all hell is going to break loose on this earth. But until that time, this is the day of salvation and we need to be working and functioning like the saved people we are. When I was a child, I remember my mother, every Christmas she would take my sister and I down to the main department store in Columbus, Ohio. That store was called Lazarus. And it was a huge department store, at least I remember it that way as a little child. And we would walk in front of the department store to go into the main door, and they had this new air curtain. I remember the heat that would come up, and it was supposed to keep the cold air out and warm air in. But as we go by, there would be a, a string of beggars that were taking advantage of the heat that was sort of spilling out onto the, the walks of the street. And they would be deformed and 
have their cups and they would have their hand out. And as we go by, I tried not to look because I didn't want to see them. But you'd see them out of the corner of your eye. And I was thinking, you know, why? And my mom, of course, thinking, well, I better say something and help my kids understand what's going on. As I kept thinking to myself, why, how did this happen, who's to blame, my mom would say, and she quote this familiar saying, and you've heard it before, there but for the grace of God goeth I. The answer has always troubled me. It implies that God is to blame, but that in our case, he was gracious. But God is not the blame. He is gracious, but he's not the blame. While I was in seminary, I thought I had a lot of answers. But I also became aware that even if the answers to these questions were known, they would not help heal the broken heart or the broken life or restore a broken home or mend a broken relationship. Just after I got out of seminary, I went to a a large megachurch to work as an assistant pastor. And just down the road from where the church was, there was a community that, uh, that was that, in which a, a man lived that I had played football with in college. And uh, I went to visit. He'd gotten married while I was in seminary, and I went to visit him and his wife, and they had a little baby. And they brought the baby out, and I held the baby. And, and then they looked at me, and they, they said... Uh, the baby's retarded. And we think God is punishing us because we had sex before marriage. What do you say, Pastor? They didn't say it quite like that, but that's in essence what they were saying. And as a new pastor, newly ordained, I looked at the young couple and I had all my answers in mind, all my ducks lined up in a row from my seminary days, and I thought, you know, this isn't what's going to help them. You know, I could say, well, you're not thinking correctly. The crime doesn't fit the punishment. Or maybe I could say, yeah, you might be partially right, but not completely right. But I didn't know. Who am I kidding? What I did is I began to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Initially, I was uncomfortable with their conclusion, but I knew that Jesus is what they needed to hear. And so I talked with them some more, and I began to challenge them to consider the fact that God loves them and hasn't given up on them, that God wants to have a part in their life. And that it's not really important at this point to worry about who's to blame for a child that was born abnormal. That God has a purpose in that He intends to work with you and help you to be loving, gracious parents and to raise this child in a beautiful way that will help this child develop into His full potential. And then I went on to share the gospel and how Christ had already been punished for our sin. And how God wants from from us more than anything just to have a relationship with us as a father would have a relationship 
with a son. And that he wanted to walk with them through this time together. I went to West Virginia as a senior pastor or lead pastor. A little church in Appalachia. People there did two things. They worked in the coal mines and they smoked. I remember this young, relatively young couple at the time, the 30s. And they'd been very active in the church, came faithfully Sunday after Sunday for almost a year. Then, boom, all of a sudden they weren't around anymore. What is going on? Talked with them. They wouldn't return phone calls. They just didn't seem very interested in even discussing anything. Finally, I get a call from the, guy, from the woman, and she says, Arch, Arch, we need you right away. They found a spot on Lou's lung. I get, on the, get in my car, drive with the hospital, take the elevator to the top floor where he was. And just as soon as the elevator doors open, this woman comes at me crying and beating on my chest and saying, I just knew God was going to do this to us because we hadn't been coming to church faithfully. We dropped out of church. Now, whether justified or not, blaming themselves isn't going to make the spot disappear. In some instances like this, confession and repentance could be in order. But what is most needed by those of us who are close to them is the assurance that God still loves them and desires to help them and draw near to them and will not desert them in their hour of crisis. That's what they needed to hear. And that's what I shared with them. I went to Montana and served as a pastor there. An area of ranchers and farming. Huge spreads, just unbelievable. This one particular man was born, I don't know if he was born crippled, but he was crippled by polio, I guess it was. And he drug his leg into church. He had a huge ranch and did a lot of, of uh, cultivating of grain as well as ran, running cattle. He had a son, 21 years old. It was a student at uh, Montana State University. And he was so proud of his son. He'd tell me about what he was doing and he was going to come and take over the, the family farm and run things for him and and you could just sense he was just so waiting for this to happen because he'd been struggling himself over these years just to hang in there. He'd dragging his leg around the spread and trying to do all the work and chores that you have to do on a ranch. And then one day his son was driving a tractor and he was plowing manure with a front loader, picking it up, putting it into a, a truck. And what happened was he backed up. The manure was on a spread of a cement area where they had put it, where they were dumping it, I guess it was. And he backed off of the slab. It was about a foot down. It was just enough to throw the tractor upside down. The tractor rolls over, crushes the boy, and kills him instantly. I went to the feudal home, met with the man. He's looking at his son. And I'll tell you, I didn't know quite what to do. I was in tears myself. I was so 
upset about this. And I could sense the man was probably blaming himself, thinking, oh, if I had been out there, it wouldn't have happened, or if I had been there watching, or, or maybe he was thinking to himself, you know, why didn't you take me, Lord? I'm no, I'm no use at this point. Why my son, whom I wanted to turn this all over to? My only son. How could I even, how could I even hope to intrude upon his cries of anguish? All I could do was cry with him. And that's what I did. And I assured him of God's presence and love at this very moment. And I tried to point him to the certainty that we have as Christians that he would see his son again. And yet I knew all this talk was somewhat inadequate for the moment. And I learned that in some situations, it's just better to share some mutual tears and put your arm around a shoulder and hug somebody. And to maybe say, we need to remember that our Heavenly Father lost His Son to physical death as well. Yes, it was necessary for our salvation, but there was no less grief in our Father's heart and infinitely more pain in our Heavenly Father's heart. Another situation that occurred there in Montana, there was a couple in our church that had been coming very faithfully, a neat couple. And they were unable to have children. And they invited me over one day, and I came over to talk, and they looked at me and they said, we're, we can't have children. The wife's was unable to conceive. And she was convinced it was God's punishment upon her because she had an abortion in her early life. Now, as someone who opposes abortion, it would be tempting to agree and decide with her in blaming her ordeal on herself. But in reality, friends, I don't know. Who am I to say what caused her not to have the ability to conceive a child? Perhaps the problem was prior to her abortion. Perhaps it was just a genetic abnormality. Perhaps... It had nothing to do directly with her abortion. Perhaps her womb would have been closed regardless. No one knows for certain. But even if we could pinpoint the exact reason for her problem, would that help her at that moment cope any better with her problem? That she may never be able to give birth to her own child? I was convinced what she needed was a hug and an assurance that the streams of God's mercy and grace never can never cease to flow. And that he has not given up on her because of her past. That he stands ready to forgive her. And in Jesus Christ, her sin has been removed because she's a believer. And furthermore, I believe that either God may open her womb at some time. Who's to say with the processes we have today? Or perhaps God has other children in this world for her to love and care for, either as a parent or in some other special sense. Lastly, I just share with you something from our own church. A number of years ago, we had a very vibrant youth program as we have today. 
We have three young girls in that program who got pregnant within the course of a year, year and a half, something like that, out of wedlock. And the alarm bells began to go off as to what was going on in the youth program. And I remember we reached out to those girls. We had a shower for them. We tried to do everything we could to support them and help them through this time. But there were some in the church that were very angry with me and with some of us that wanted to help. And they said, we're sending the wrong message. We're saying to these girls that we want to help them when we should be rebuking them. They need to be brought to, brought to account for what they've done. And my answer was, they are being brought to account. They're struggling with what they've done. And what we need to do is what Jesus would do, which it's better to find God at work and to show the works of God toward them than to try and place the blame. Dearly beloved, whether we are enduring a tragedy in life, a trouble in our home, turmoil in our church, or a travesty in our community, always keep this lesson firmly in mind. It is better to look expectantly for the hand of God in our circumstances than to look despairingly at the faults of people who caused our circumstances. It's better to point our lives toward God than to point our finger at people. It's better to find God at work than find people to blame. Our Father, I pray that you would take this, to, take this and apply this message to our hearts.